This Sunday, of course, is Palm Sunday, celebrated all over the world by, by the church. And the most gospels, I mean, this is related to the week before Jesus comes, I mean, Jesus is crucified and, the, and Easter, the week before Easter, the Sunday before Easter, and all the gospels, not all, most of them mention the whole idea of Jesus coming riding on the colt of a donkey, basically, Jesus comes riding into the city of Jerusalem. And as he's riding and approaching the city, people are lying in the streets and they're waving their palm branches. Amen. Waving their palm branches and throwing their cloaks, throwing their coats and their robes or whatever, throwing it on the ground in front of him. And they're shouting as he's going past, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it is marked as what we the church recognize as the, the passion week as such. Essentially the last week of Jesus' life. Here on earth as such. And of course through this week people and churches and Christians focus a lot on Jesus' suffering and the whole experience of the cross. And this, this week really is full of meaning for us as Christians. Amen. Really significant even as it... Leads up, there's so much teaching done in this week. You know, we talk about the celebrating the, the Lord's table. We, it's similar to, I mean, we celebrate, we have communion. It's the same thing that he did with his disciples that last week. What we call the Last Supper. And these last few days that finally end up taking him to the cross. And this morning I want us once again to focus on these events that led up and especially focus on Good Friday and the whole uh, Jesus hanging on the cross and everything that happened as he took his last breath. And real quick, Easter for me is my favorite and I've shared that before too. It's my absolute favorite because it brings hope that death was not the end but that Jesus rose again. And because he rose again, that's what gives us hope. And so we love, and I love, I love, absolutely love Easter. And of course, it's a joyful time because you're rejoicing because Jesus, he is risen. He is risen. But this morning, I want us also to focus a little bit before Easter. To focus on what he had to go through. What he had to go through. Because the more I realize that, the more I realize that he went through everything he went through because of me, the more I appreciate yeah. salvation. The more I appreciate and gives me a very different perspective on salvation too. Please, again, I'm not suggesting we all wear black and mourn as such. But let's not forget that it was real. 
It was hard. It wasn't easy for him to go through that cross. It wasn't easy at all. As he withstood all that whipping and all that mockery and everything else, he withstood. He took that all. It wasn't easy. Even for him, it wasn't easy because what did he say? God, if possible, take this away from me. And I challenge you to put yourself this week, walk with him again this week as he is mocked, as he is beaten, as he is spat upon. Walk beside him as he pulls that cross or carries that cross through the streets right up to Golgotha. Put yourself in that situation because I'm saying this. It puts your salvation in a different perspective. And when you have a different perspective of salvation, you have a different way you live your life too. Because let's be honest, and sometimes when things are free, we don't appreciate it enough. Sometimes when things are given to us free, we use it like we really don't care. Salvation was free to each one of us. Life that he gives us is free to each one of us. We can't take that lightly. When you realize or when you yourself have to pay a price and you buy, you work hard, you buy something, you value it very differently. You value it when you realize that someone had to go through so much and then with all that love he had for me, he gave me something. You hold on to that very differently. Sometimes we forget that salvation is free but it was bought at a high price. That's why I encourage you to walk with Christ this week. Walk with Christ this week. Because it gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse. I know we sing that song, I'll never know how much it costs. We'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. We'll never know. But as we walk with him this week, it gives us a glimpse of how much it really costs him. Turn with me once again to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're going to go through verses 32 all the way through verse 46. Luke chapter 23 verses 32 all the way through 36, uh, 46. Sorry, Verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, also were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, that's Golgotha, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. These are the soldiers. The people stood watching the rulers even sneering at them. They uh, sneering at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice Above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. 
One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he has said this, he breathed his last. This first part, and we'll read the next few verses in a little while. But this first part sets up a really, really, it's really dramatic uh, as such. It's pretty dramatic, pretty graphic if you want to say that. And imagine with me what's happening right now is Jesus again is this target of all the mockery, all the cynicism, all, you know, as sarcastic as they get. Hey, if you're the king, save yourself, save me too. And he is mocked and, you know, snickered at. And it really feels, I always have this image, it really feels like the circus is in town because everybody's out there to see what's happening. I remember right around 2000. 13, 2014, we were at Sagu, and right beside Sagu is this big, uh, they have the National Guard place, and they have this big, huge yard, and all of a sudden, in like early afternoon, right, right around noon, this big semi rolls in there, huge semi, and then there was another truck with a trailer, and everybody's like, you know, and that was right opposite where we lived, and so we're looking at it and trying to figure out what's happening, and then of course, someone drops the trailer, and you can see this tail of this elephant in there, and I'm like, what in the world? And of course, Sagu students, no other thing to do. So they all start going, look in, what's happening? And it really was a circus. Like, you know, there was this Russian couple with, they had, I mean, the whole group with them. But they put up a tent. Within one day, they put up a tent. They had these animals. They had uh, these horses and all kinds of stuff. And they had an elephant in there with this, which did tricks and everything. But what it did was, as soon as they start putting up one thing, everybody showed up. I mean, we had faculty people right after, I mean, they go, they probably never left the office before, but they were going walking all the way to see what's happening. Is there really an elephant right outside campus? And that's the idea I get. Everybody's curious to see what's happening. Because this is the same guy who came in riding on a donkey a week ago. This is the same guy who really is, you know, doing nothing right now. Everybody's here. One purpose, to mock him, laugh at him, make fun of him, walk with him as he's walking along. You can picture them walking along with him as he's walking, carrying that cross. The comedy, because he called Elijah. Hey, he's calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah really comes. He saved others. Let's see if he can really save himself first. Oh, he's a king. Where's his kingdom? Where's your kingdom? And everybody laughs. Every time there's a comment made, everybody's laughing. They hit him, spit on his face. 
blindfolded him a little while early and told him, tell us who hit you. You're a prophet. And every time something like that happened, you can just picture that the laughter and the loud, the intensity just goes higher and higher and higher. But right in the middle of all this fun, it says darkness came over the whole land. Someone turned off the lights. Somebody switched off the lights and it gets pitch dark. You can, what's the phrase? You can't see your hand in front of your face, basically. At the sixth hour, the Bible says, it's noon, basically, right around noon. When the sun is supposed to be at its highest point. Darkness. Total, total darkness. And it isn't really a sudden, but it's fairly quick. It isn't like the cloud came over the sun for a few hours. No, it wasn't that kind of darkness. This is pitch black because it says the sun stopped shining. That's totally different from an eclipse or whatever. The sun stopped shining and can you picture what's happening? Because everybody's having a great time at Jesus' expense. But in a few moments, all the laughter, all the joking, all the mocking stops. Because they can't even see each other in the dark. And terror, terror seizes their hearts. Because nobody knows what's happening. The Roman soldiers definitely don't know what's happening. The Jewish, mainly Jewish crowd... They have no idea what's happening. The Jewish crowd has no idea what's happening. And of course the beloved disciples who had followed him all this way. They have no idea what's happening. And that's why I said this is probably. Not probably. This is the darkest day in history. Because the sun did not shine. On the darkest day of history there was confusion. All the fun had come to an end. For three hours there was no light at all and at the end of it all Jesus breathes last and he dies the next few verses that we saw that we read from the next few verses 47 48 and 49 tells us about the groups of people who were at the cross and how they responded to this confusion differently And as we look at their response, I challenge you once again to look at your own response to the cross. Your own response to what's happening or what Christ did back then. One of the things, and I'm sure I've said this before. For me, one of the things is one of my passions, the Lord burdens, the Lord laid on my heart is to renew a reverence for the cross because like it or not in the west the culture we wear crosses crosses mean nothing i mean you can be cussing god the whole time with every song every word you sing but you can still hang out with the cross on your on your on your around your neck and one of the things that god really challenged me to and something that i have a burden for is the reverence when it comes to the cross because the cross was not an ornament we wear around our necks. It was a sentence of total. There was no coming back from there. 
And we need to realize that Jesus paid that price. And the cross was meant for us, but he paid the price. Anyway, let's turn our attention first to the confused, the confused soldiers, because they are totally confused by what's happening around them. They are totally confused because this darkness all of a sudden seems to come in, roll in basically really quickly. But as this darkness begins to just lift, Jesus breathes his last. But as he breathes his last in verse, he says, you know, he gives up his spirit as such. Verse 47 says, and when the centurion saw what happened, he began praising God. Saying, certainly, this man was righteous. This man was a righteous man. Another translation, another, actually, I think it was Matthew who says, this man was the son of God. The centurion, you got to realize, and the soldiers, this wasn't their fight. This wasn't their fight. They didn't have a side to pick here. It's, this was between the Jews and, the, and Jesus. And they were really silent witnesses all along. Silent witnesses in the sense that they were not going to take sides. All they were in charge of was make sure this guy doesn't get away. Make sure we make his life miserable even in these last few hours. That's it. The centurion was there. Matthew tells us about him. Mark tells us about him too. And it's kind of interesting because his testimony, testimony really matters. Because he's not a Jew as such. Centurion, okay? So he's in charge of a hundred people. That was the smallest unit. The smallest portion of people that you had uh, in the Roman army as such. The centurion, of course, is not someone who... He's not an elite soldier as such who graduated from like a West Point or something. But he's someone who had been battle-hardened. Earned his spot as the commander of those a hundred people. And so he and these guys, they are just really battle-hardened soldiers as such. Soldiers. They knew what it was. You know, they are used to the blood and the guts and fighting for everything. They're used to this kind of stuff. So for them, a petty criminal and these crazy Jewish leaders, for them it's it's just funny. Look at these people just eating each other up. And they are confused because in the middle of all this darkness comes in. There's no doubt that these were the same people who also arrested Jesus on Thursday night. Basically back in the garden when he was there. These were the people who took him away. The soldiers were under the command of this guy, uh, the centurion. He was there right from the beginning. As he took Jesus to the Jewish leaders and then of course to Pilate. And you see the way people and the crowd are cheering and you know shouting and everything else. And they're just standing there at the background or at the side listening to everything. Taking in everything that was happening. And then of course they took part in the mocking of the prisoner too. They're the ones that threw the old soldier's cloak, the red robe as such that we think about. They are the ones who put that on him. They are the ones that give him like a reed or a scepter, you know, to hold because he's a king. They are the ones who put a crown on his head because, but we know it's a crown of thorns. They are the ones who really mock him, spit on him, hit him and everything else. So they are still there. They are the ones that whipped him as it, it took and peeled off the flesh from his body. They are the ones who really did that. 
They are the ones who disfigured his face beyond human recognition is what it says in Isaiah. They really, again, they had no stake in this except to make his life miserable. But as they were there, they also heard the accusations that were brought against him. But they also heard that he was declared innocent six times if you read the gospel. And they're here listening to him. Listening to this whole thing. They hear the accusations, but they also hear that he has been declared innocent. Jesus acts. One thing would have stuck out to them is that Jesus was no common criminal at all. Because he did not act like any prisoner they had ever seen before. And the fact that people said he was innocent verifies for them that this guy is different. He never fights back, never retaliates, never cries out, never demands justice. I need justice, never demands anything. All he does is suffer. And if you want to say suffer with grace and majesty like nobody had ever done before under their charge. He takes in all the mockery, all the abuse, silently, never protesting as they spit on him, punch him, taunt him, mistreat him. Never cusses back at them. Never threatens them. Totally amazed how different Jesus is. The way he reacted was not like any other prisoner ever before. There was really no category as such to put him in. But the truth is this, that didn't make a difference to him, to them. Even though they knew or they had heard his innocence, even though he acted so differently from anybody else, they still did what they had to do. Drive those nails into his hands. Drive that nail into his feet. Drop him into that cross, that hole that was there. Drop him into that. And as it dropped, it tore his flesh apart. But they didn't care just because he was silent. But even through that brutality, you can tell the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts. Not just the centurion here. The Holy Spirit was working in their hearts because they heard him pray, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. They heard him cry out to his father. He says, God, why have you forsaken me? They heard him promise paradise to this thief who's hanging next to him. And they are obviously confused. What's happening? This guy's on a cross about to die. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. They saw it all. And as they saw, they're processing all this. And then the darkness comes in. Midnight. At noontime. Three hours of pitch darkness. And then it says the earth quakes as the rocks split as such. And then they could not ignore Jesus anymore. They could not ignore the reality of what was unfolding before them. As Jesus cries out one last time and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They cannot ignore that he is, in fact, innocent. Not just innocent, he says, he is, surely he is a righteous man. They cannot ignore it. Anymore. It was in this darkness. In this darkness. That the centurion 
experiences the light. It's in this darkness that the light finally came on in his heart. It's the light of the Holy Spirit that finally shone into his heart. That surely this man is righteous. This man is a son of God. That's what John says. Where does he get this whole idea of son of God? Because he hears, if you read the gospel, that's what they accused him of. Everything else he was innocent of. But the one thing that they couldn't and they got onto these guys was he's claiming to be God. He is the son of God. And here he is. He said he sees this darkness and he says surely he is who he says he is. The light comes on in the midst of the darkness. In the darkest day. On the darkest day in history. The centurion and I'd like to add the soldiers saw the light saw the light the light was the truth of who jesus really was that's it that he was who he said he was matthew kind of notes that as they as the as the darkness is lifting the earthquake comes you know there's this earthquake and the rocks split as such And it says, Matthew uses the phrase, and they feared greatly when that happened. Feared greatly. It's the same words that are used on the Mount of Transfiguration when they see Jesus with, uh, who is it, Moses and Elijah. They feared greatly because there's this sense of awe and respect. And all of a sudden, they are gripped with a sense of awe and, and respect as they see You can picture with me this total darkness. All they can hear is three criminals breathing. Because everybody else has shut up. All the joking has stopped. All they can hear is Jesus breathing his last. Saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as that goes in that background, they know what the light really is. They came confused. They were confused by everything that's happening. But in the darkness, they saw the light. The second group of people... The confused crowd. I wanted to add the crazy confused crowd because they have no clue. Absolutely no clue. Verse 48 says, When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Another translation, it says, When they came to see this spectacle. And I love that word there. Once again we're introduced to this crowd. That is just on a roller coaster of emotions. The fickle. We always use the phrase. The fickle crowd. Because only a week ago. That Monday. Not a week ago. Four days ago. That Monday. They were getting ready with palm branches. And shouting and screaming. Getting all excited and all hyped up. Hosanna son of David. This is the Messiah. And they're getting so excited. Because this is the person they've been waiting for. Years and years and years. We've been waiting for this guy. And they're getting so excited. They're just caught up in this euphoria. With this anticipation that the Messiah has finally come. And now he's going to kick these Roman guys away. And they're so excited and they're so, you know, I can picture, the only picture I get in my head is, you know, after they win the Super Bowl, you see the crowds lining as the parade goes around. That's exactly what I picture. Everybody's so excited and I was watching these guys, these guys are in the bus and they're doing whatever, people are throwing them stuff. That guy, 
I forgot who it was. Someone threw something, grabbed onto that beer can and of course chucked the whole thing and everybody started shouting even more. Of course, Jesus was not looking for that kind of attention, but you can picture euphoria. People are going crazy at this time because this is the Messiah they've been waiting for. Finally, he's here. We got this. People are going crazy, but within a moment, within just four or five days, these religious leaders are using these same emotions and turn them against Jesus. Turn them against Jesus. These emotions of excitement and extreme joy is turned into extreme hatred, anger, animosity as they scream, crucify him now because they have lost. This is not who we want crucify him this is not the king we want his blood be on us and our children and now they're mocking and cheering because they get what they want but then darkness wraps itself around them like a thick blanket and they can't do anything have you ever been I used the, I shouldn't tell on people, but when I was younger, I had some cousins who would wrap me up so tight and tape me up, and I could not move, just for fun, because I was the youngest. But picture that with darkness, doing it in such a way that they can't see anything. All they can do is just sit down and wait. And as they wait, they have to think. They are forced to think about what they have just done. They can't go anywhere because they can't see. They're running into each other. But all they can do is stay right there in total silence. Hear Jesus breathe and pray. Give up his spirit as such. And all they can do is think in the darkness. When you have nothing else to do, sometimes all you can do is think about what God has done for you. That's what's happening right here. They came for the spectacle, for the sight, to see what was happening. The word here used is, you know, for sight. But for sight, you need light. But now there's no light. There is no light anymore. There is no spectacle anymore. There is nothing. The entertainment had stopped. It had lost its charm. They can't. The joke had only gone this far and now that's it. Now what we have is darkness. All we have is darkness and then the earth quakes. And as the darkness lifted, these guys beat their chest and walk back to the city. For these people, the darkness created chaos but also brought conviction. Created chaos because you can think back then. These guys were ready for the, all the sacrifices. You have all the priests are all hands on deck because this is the main day, right? All hands on deck, thousands of animals all getting ready. But imagine the chaos. Everything goes pitch black. And in the middle of that black, light out as such. The temple veil is ripped in half. They have no idea what's happening. This chaos, all of a sudden, they are terrified because God's presence is now, they are face to face in God's presence because they were protected by that veil all this while. But now when the Spirit of God is there, they cannot. Their hearts are exposed for who they really are. The veil can't protect them anymore. Chaos and confusion. 
It says they beat their chest and walked down, walked away back to the city. You know, Golgotha's on a hill outside the city and they're walking back. The entertainment they had come to or came out seeking was all gone because the supernatural had replaced their fun time with fear, anxiety, guilt, conviction because of the reality of what they had really done. The whole idea that Luke uses here of them beating their chest is the same idea used when he talks about the tax collector and everybody else. The guy who's standing in the corner beats his chest, can't lift his head to God, but with his head down he says, forgive me. That's all. He says, ask for God's mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the idea right here. From coming mocking, now all they can do is put their head down in shame, in guilt, beat the chest. God have mercy on us. God have mercy on us because terror, again, fear of the Lord grips their heart. That is the response. Fear grips their heart because they realize that they have done something that's not right. They have rejected Christ. And now when they rejected Christ, fear grips their hearts because they realize without Him, they aren't going to make it. I know a number of people. When it finally dawns on them that they don't have Christ. When they are face to face with the future. And I've seen people. I've been with people right on their deathbeds. When they realize that they've lived their lives without Christ. And then fear grips their hearts because of all that they've done. And they realize. I need Jesus. It's never too late. But if you stand there, if I have stood there beside them on, at their bed. When you see the fear in their eyes, it's a whole nother ballgame because this is reality. You can live your life however you want to, but they, you know that there will be a day. There will be a day. There is going to be a time then there's no running away. Fear grips their heart because they realize the mistake they made. Guilt. And of course, this guilt just builds and builds and builds. Builds and builds and builds till the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up. Peter stands up and says, This Jesus whom you crucify, God raised up. And then you see the response to people who are feeling so guilty. It says that the Lord, it pierced as he preached, it pierced their hearts. And they come to Peter and say, what do we need to do? Because think about it, this guilt, they've been carrying this all this time from, uh, from Good Friday all the way to Pentecost. They've been carrying this guilt because they had done something wrong and they're standing in divine judgment. And they're, re- or, what can I say, they're just broken totally. Broken with guilt. And then when Peter stands up and tells them about what you did, this is what you really did, but Jesus God rose, uh, raised him up from the dead. And then they come to Peter. What do we need to do? And he says, all you have to do is repent and believe in Christ. You see, I firmly believe and I know what Peter reaped. The reward was the seed that was sown by the Holy Spirit at the cross. In that darkness, God brought conviction in their hearts. 
in their darkness, in that darkest hour, God was working in their hearts. Thousands of people joined the church on Pentecost. You had the Roman soldiers, the darkness, in the darkness, the light shone on their hearts where they realized their eyes were open to see Jesus for who he really was. You see these people here, Jewish, predominantly Jewish people, in the darkness, the Holy Spirit was working, convicting them. And of course, the disciples right at the end. The disciples came following Jesus to see what was going to happen. They're totally confused because this is not what they expected. Even though Jesus had told them time and time again, hey, this is, I'm not going to be the Messiah that people want me to be. They're still confused because it says in verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. If I can say they came confused, they left even more confused really. Because this is not what they expected. When they saw this crowd, they were like, they were believing, okay, this is what it is. This is why we've hung around with this guy for three years. This is it. This is why we've stuck with him. Given up our families for. This is it. This is the moment he's going to come and he's going to be crowned king. But now they're totally, totally confused. The women, of course, the Bible, different gospels identify who the women were. Of course, we know his mother was right there. Because Jesus talks to her, basically, woman. Behold your son, talking about John, referring to John, of course. But since they were standing at a distance, and I can totally see that they just can't bear what's happening to Jesus. Because they, I mean, they love him. Of course, his mother, of course. And I can see as her heart is breaking in that confusion. Mary was given this promise by, you know, the angel all the way back. promise was given that he would save his people but also that a sword would pierce her heart that's exactly what was happening right here it says Mary Magdalene was another woman who was, who was at the cross and that's the one whom Jesus drove the demons out of really she was there then of course the mother of James and John was also I think John mentions that the mother of James and John was also at the cross you got to remember, this is the woman who asked, Jesus, when you come, let my kids stand on your left and your right. And Jesus actually rebuked her. But she's still there at the cross. They came confused, but left even more confused because they didn't know what Jesus was all about, really. They didn't know what he meant when he said, a shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. They didn't totally understand when it says, you know, I got this cup. Can you drink this cup too? They didn't understand what it means when that grain of wheat had to die to bring more life. They knew that he was the Messiah. They just didn't know how it was going to happen. They knew he was the Son of God. They just didn't know what that would really look like. They didn't know it would take the cross for them to be really saved, for their eyes to be really open to see Jesus and the purpose to which he came. Their confusion, you can tell, is goes all the way till you see in Luke 24 or 22 later when on the road to Emmaus in 24, sorry. 
when finally in 24, these disciples are walking around and Jesus himself has to come along and explain to them what's happening. In the darkness, yes, they lost and they were disappointed, but there was also hope. There was also hope in the midst of the darkness. There was hope because they knew that darkness was supernatural. There was hope in the midst of the darkness. How do we respond to the cross? How do we respond to the reality that Jesus took your place on that cross? How do you respond to the fact that it was you who was supposed to be condemned to die, but he died so that you may live? Do we allow the light of what happened to shine on our hearts like, the, like it did in the hearts of the Roman soldiers back then? Do we allow the truth of who Jesus is and the price he paid, allow it to convict our hearts in such a way that when we read the word, all we can do is say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do we allow it to bring conviction in our hearts? Do we allow it even though we don't understand how God works to trust him? That's what the disciples had to do. Trust that his plans were far greater than their plans and their ideas. Trust that he would turn their disappointment into the greatest story that will ever be told. How do we respond to the darkness? Bow your heads with me at this time. I don't know if about you guys, whether you guys have done this, but very, I have done this several times. I have tried to put myself in the shoes of these disciples. Put myself in the shoes of these disciples. Because all that excitement they had for three years, hanging out with Jesus, the miracles that they saw, all the promises, you know. Yes, they had expectations and everything else. But all that hope as such was hanging there on a lifeless, lifeless body on a cross. And I have often, really often wondered what is going through their minds. Confusion. Confusion. Hopelessness as such. But you realize that that sorrow was so short-lived. So short-lived because that sorrow turned into joy in three days. That disappointment became the greatest story they would ever tell. That disappointment is what they were willing to lay their life down for. They were willing they would never deny him again. Never doubt his purpose again. Please understand. 
people respond differently to the cross. People who've been in the dark and I have so many testimonies I can tell you about. People who've lived in the dark for years. They meet Jesus at the cross and suddenly that light comes on. They realize that they got Jesus. They are face to face with the truth of who Jesus are and they can't deny it anymore. the light comes on the crowds as they stood there in the midst of their mocking in the midst of all this jealousy and hatred and anger the holy spirit was still working working in their hearts because when they came face to face with the cross conviction conviction overtook them Church, I want you to think about this. Because this is conviction, not condemnation at all. Conviction is not just for the sinner out there. It's conviction for us here in here too. As we face the reality and the truth of who God is. Our hearts convicted. Because I know every time I read the word. I'm challenged. That's what I'm talking about here. Challenged. Because the things in my life it exposes the things in my life that I know I need to change because I can't hide behind that veil anymore. It's just God and me, just him, his presence and me. Am I challenged and convicted? Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to stir in my heart all the time not just one time all the time stir in my heart prune the things that need to be pruned cut the things that need to be cut off I'll be allowing that I'll be allowing that conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit in our lives And if Jesus has been a disappointment for you this far. Again, let me be honest. I've known a lot of people who've who are so disappointed because for them Jesus is just, you know what? Yeah, I tried it, it didn't work. I challenge you and encourage you to press in. because that discouragement that disappointment that you've had and i don't know if it's because of the church has let you down people have let you down let me tell you if you earnestly stick in and see jesus face to face for who he is you will not be 
disappointed that disappointment will turn to joy that will give you the reason to live when you really have him and meet him face to face it gives you purpose to live again